the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be looking at the latest reports on house prices with Omar Kennedy of the Irish Times and Marion Finnegan of estate agent Sherry Fitzgerald. And in the second half of the show, I'll be talking to Owen and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times about our bulging corporation tax receipts. How long will this bounty last for? And what should we be doing with the surplus cash? First to housing. MyHome.ie, which is owned by the Irish Times, and Sherry Fitzgerald published reports this week on the latest movement in house prices. They both give a different slant on the market. In a short while, you'll hear Marion Finnegan of Sherry Fitzgerald explain why we need to stop demonising private landlords who are quitting the rental market in their droves. But first, I asked Umber Kennedy to take us through the headline numbers in the two reports. So, yeah, we've had... Uh Two recent reports in, in recent days on the property market uh, giving us sort of conflicting signals uh, on the surface, but maybe the experts will say they both uh, show in general a kind of softening of the property market. So first off, we had uh, my home uh, .ie's latest quarterly uh, update, and that suggested that the um, general price of homes in the country uh, fell by 0.3% in the first quarter of this year. That was the third consecutive quarterly decline. So uh, that shows a, a, a definite softening in the market. And then we had a report uh, by Sherry Fitzgerald, state, uh, the state's largest estate agent, uh, saying prices were still rising by 0.8% uh, in the first quarter of this year, and the annual inflation rate was still uh, positive at 3.6%. Now, I just will remind listeners, we... we these reports are based on, on different kind of metrics. So My Home uh, is based on asking prices uh, on its website. Uh, Sherry Fitzgerald is based on a basket of their own properties and the value uh, of the properties within that basket. And then we have the CSO data, which predates both these reports, uh, telling us that uh, annual inflation is still positive, but on a monthly basis it's, it has turned negative. And, of course, the CSO's data is based on actual transactions based on uh, you know, stamp duty data. So uh, a confusing picture if you go granular in terms of each of those reports. But in general, I think we can see that the market is softening is probably the best description on the back of higher borrowing costs. And obviously, a lot of the industry here say that those borrowing costs, while limiting, uh, you know, buyer, buyer activity, will still be uh, outgunned, outweighed, counterbalanced, whatever way you want to describe it, by the big uh, supply issues at the centre of our market. Marion, help us make some sense of this. In Sherry Fitz's experience, are prices going up or down? Prices are rising, but by a much lower pace than they would have been doing for the last couple of years. So as we came out of COVID, we saw that initial you know, surge of demand to a market that was very undersupplied. And that led to price inflation in 2021 across the country coming in at just under 10% by our analysis. So as Owen said there, we have a basket of properties that we revalue on a repeat valuation method every month. And that gives us our index. And we've been doing this since 1996. So it's, it's a very long run series. Um, in last year, that same analysis showed price inflation in around five, a little bit over 5% for the country. And then for the latest data, we're seeing price inflation for Ireland on an annual basis to the end of the first quarter coming in at 3.6%, for Dublin coming in at 2.9%. So what we're seeing is a marked and continuous slowdown over the last two years in the pace of inflation. I think that's probably what all the indices are saying, but it's dependent on 
the timing. One is looking at asking prices, others are looking at, depending on how you mix adjust the properties that are available. The other thing that's probably important to note when you're looking at this is that prior to COVID, there was a seasonality in the marketplace. So in the opening quarter, we typically sold starter homes, uh, smaller properties. Then in the spring season, the larger, more mature properties came to the market. Everything quietened down for the summer. And then we saw a second season in September. After COVID, we were locked out of the market, obviously, between March and June. We reopened the doors on June the 8th and seasonality went out the window. So all of that summer was like spring and that just continued right the way through the end of the year and indeed for most of 2021 and into 2022. What we're seeing this year definitively is a more seasonal marketplace. So uh, January and February, in terms of new instructions across the board, across the entire country, was quiet just as it would have been in 2019. Um, and indeed in 2020, the first few months, and now we're seeing that uptick in terms of instructions um, coming through in properties of all shapes and sizes. So I think there's a little bit of, of an adjustment to the market as it returns to a more normal seasonal uh, trends. And where do you think the property market is at at the minute? Because there are lots of fears around uh, recession. Interest rates are going up, obviously. So that makes the, the borrowing costs higher. And for first-time buyers especially, it just makes things a little bit tougher, doesn't it? So I just wonder whether, you know, if you were to call the market at the moment, um, have we reached peak property prices in Ireland or not? I don't think so. And I, the reason I'm saying that is because if you look at a few factors, first of all, the demand for accommodation. So um, over the last 10 years, the average household size in Ireland has gone up, not down, which it should be doing in a normal trend line. Um, and we, the reason for that is that we've been undelivering properties, uh, not delivering enough properties um, either to buy or to rent. So the people are being literally squeezed into the available accommodation. In the last five years alone, the population has grown by about 360,000 and we've built or we have delivered or increased the stock by about 120,000. But that's not just for the last five years, it's for the last 10 to 15 years that's been the gap. The stock available to buy at the moment is 26% below where it was um, pre-COVID. So again, we now have about 15,000 units in our last analysis of stock available to buy over the, uh, over the entire country. That's incredibly low by any standard. Uh, we're selling just under 60,000 units across the entire country in the year. So to have 15,000, you basically three months supply at any one time. That's too low for a functioning marketplace. So there's no doubt house prices are high relative to um, income levels overall. However, the demand for that accommodation is so great that it will underpin prices. I don't think we're going to continue to see the pace of price inflation that we've seen since we came out of COVID. I think we'll see a much more moderate, very low single-digit figure level of inflation reflecting that affordability challenge. Um, but equally, I don't expect to see prices falling. So when you say single-digit, I mean, single-digit could be 1% or it could be 9%. 9% would be very toppy still. What do you mean by yeah. single-digit? Where, where are you falling? I think low single-digits. I think for this year, it'll come in somewhere between 2 or 3%. And if you look at the trend lines that I just gave you a moment ago, where average values in, in Dublin in the last uh, 12 months are 29 and Ireland overall is 3.6. What's interesting, though, when you delve into the figures a little bit further is that it's actually rural Ireland that's driving the house price inflation. So the highest level of house price inflation is actually outside of Dublin at 4.5% in the year rather than in Dublin. And again, that probably reflects a few things. One, I think it reflects the fact that we haven't been replenishing stock in rural Ireland at all in the last 10 years. Secondly, it probably reflects affordability a little bit. But probably more pertinently, I think it's got to do with the, the uh, stock available and that lack of, of new construction activity. 
and that is fueling demand for whatever is available and it's fueling that higher level of price inflation. Owen, uh, what is the solution to the housing crisis? The only one I can think of is an increase in supply. But um, we've had uh, various reports out so far this year indicating that supply this year actually might fall below last year uh, and certainly will be below uh, demand levels or what we perceive to be demand levels as it has been since, uh, well, for the past decade or so. So what's the picture in terms of supply as you see it for this year? Well, first and foremost, I think people uh, and the population at large are realising there's no big bang solution to housing in this country. Um, We're going to have to concentrate on lipping up supply and that is going to improve things from where they might have been in the absence of this supply. But are we going to get to a point where people on average incomes are going to be able to afford to buy homes in this country? It doesn't seem likely anytime soon, especially listening to Marion talking about the fact that we haven't reached peak housing yet. Um, There's a confusing uh, array of stats on commencements, housing starts, planning, uh, and there's a debate whether we will go down in construction levels this year or whether we'll stay at the sort of 29, 30,000 figure that we got last year um, on our uh, on our way, hopefully, to going up again in uh, 2024. Um, yeah, so... That's going on in the background. Uh, there's construction inflation. People say it's moderating. It's becoming less of an impact than it was last year. We'll just have to see. It's very difficult to see under the bonnet of of that sector right at the moment because there's so many moving parts. But yeah, it's 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 not a great look uh, where we are at the moment. And in uh, Marion's recent report, she uh, made a, a pretty startling prediction that another fifteen thousand tenancies are likely to come off uh, the private sector rental market, which is already, uh, you know, in a terrible situation, another great strain. So uh, it doesn't look like we're going to be moving out of this kind of our property woes anytime soon. Yeah, it's a bit of a depressing uh, situation, Marion. Um, is there is there any solution other than increased supply that you can see that might help things along? I mean, I think there's a myriad of solutions. Increased supply is the output that we need. We need to build more houses. I think what we need to ask ourselves is how do we achieve that? Because to be fair, we have been talking about this need for, you know, at least seven or eight years now uh, where there's been a recognition that the market is undersupplied and we need to build more. If you think back to 2015 in the government's first initiative looking at the housing market with the then first minister for housing, they suggested we need to deliver 25,000 houses. Now, it's very depressing to think it took us seven years to actually achieve that target, which was only achieved in 2022. I think we need to look at what are the factors that are preventing us from achieving those type of targets. If there is a will, which there appears to be, to do improve the housing stock, why are we not delivering um, more? And I think we can only control what is within our power to control. And um, it's something that I heard Stephen Garving mentioned the other day from Glenvey, and it's a very valid point What can we control in order to contribute to that housing stock? The first thing is we have to ensure, and we are seeing better noise coming out on this in in recent days, but we have to ensure that the planning system is working and optimally um, capable of delivering um, properties through the system. That clearly isn't happening now. I think um, the analysis that I've seen, it shows that there's about, now this could be wrong, but it's what's, uh, what's out there. It's about 70 people employed in terms of the planning regulatory body. That's simply inadequate. It should be a multiple of that. So we need to ensure that people are resourced with enough um, 
um, staff in order to ensure the planning process actually is functioning. Secondly, I think it is really not in our interest to be under forecasting the requirement. So we've looked at if the population rises to 5.8 million, which it's very much on trend to do by 2036, that means we need over 52,000 houses to be built every year if we are to have a modern housing market by that period, which would mean that the average household size would come down to about 2.3 people per household. It's not unreasonable. It's the average figure for Europe. But if we don't plan to deliver over 50,000 houses, if we still talk about delivering 35, maybe 40,000, then we're never going to achieve a target. Like with anything like a business or any target, if you don't put the target high enough, you're never going to achieve it. So I think that's the second thing that we need to do. And then thirdly, we need to look back and see what are the other obstacles to delivering accommodation in the short term. And if I just pick up on what Owen said earlier around the tenancies and landlords, if we have a problem in the housing market, we have an emergency in the rental market. And this is, I mean, it's so often spoken about, but it really needs to be understood and accepted. When you are in the middle of an emergency, when the quantity of properties available on your main portal site, which is daft, um, is 1,500, 2,000 properties at any one time, when it used to be 20,000, when the homelessness figures are going up even though there is an eviction ban, when the the airlines are, or airways are full of people talking about the stress of potential eviction because their landlords want to sell, you're doing something wrong and therefore you need to take corrective action. And I think there's this sort of um, assumption that the solution to the rental crisis lies in the institutional investors. And I firmly believe they are part of the solution, but they are not the entire solution. So we need to stop demonising private landlords and we need to ensure that we retain the ones that we have in the marketplace and hopefully encourage more to come in. Because when you've got a country as sparsely populated as the Irish, uh, as Ireland is, you can't assume that that, um, institutional investors are going to solve the rental crisis across the country. And just as we're seeing very low quantities of properties available for sale in rural Ireland, we're seeing incredibly low quantities of properties available to rent. So, I mean, we're a country, we're a tiny country, so our future success of our economy is dependent on the growth of our population, FDI investment into this country. That is going to be negatively impacted if we don't resolve the rental crisis. And I think we spoke about this, Kieran, about two years ago. And two years on, it's actually gotten worse. So I'm not quite sure what needs to happen. Where does Sherry Fitz stand on the end of the uh, ban on evictions? Do you think that's a good thing or or not the right time? I think that the ban on evictions in the first instance would only have been useful if something was done at that time. So it's a bit like um, any analogy, closing the door when, uh, when the horse has bolted. There is no point putting a ban on evictions and then taking no steps to prevent the situation from deteriorating. So they put a ban on evictions over a five, six month period. And at the end of that, nothing had changed. So if landlords were leaving the marketplace and creating um, a deepening crisis in the rental market, and then you just, you know, ban it for five months and then expect something to be different, you're on a hiding to nothing. So in my view, the ban served no purpose because all it did was kick the can down the road. Now, if they had brought the ban in and said, these are five measures that we're going to take in order to address the crisis. And we're hoping that over the next five months, it will steady the ship. And then we see what we do next if we need to do further. But doing nothing and then debating at the final hour of the final month whether or not they should remove the ban was counterproductive. And in your view, what should they do to uh, solve this crisis? 
I think for private landlords, if we start with those, first of all, first of all, I think we need to stop demonising inst- institutional investors, stop calling them vulture funds and actually stop increasing or remove the increase in stamp duty, which is applicable to houses for new construction activity for investors purchasing those properties, because that makes absolutely no sense. We need as many houses as we need apartments for rent. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I think we need to look at the tax take for private landlords. Typically, private landlords in the main are paying 52% tax. It, that needs to be reduced significantly because if the return on investment or the net yield is less than 3% and it's hovering around 2 to 2.5% for your average property, it's too low. And then I think thirdly, we need to look at um, a long-term measure to encourage people in. So you might take a view that for the next five years until you steady the ship, that you are going to uh, provide an appropriate tax rate and it needs to be significantly below that 52%. So something in the order, you could go to zero, you could go to 25%, but then you need a plan for what you're going to do afterwards. Um, So if the um, concept is that you want private landlords to remain in the marketplace, which I fundamentally believe they are a part of every other functioning housing market, why would we demonise them in Ireland? Then you need to say, and this will be the appropriate uh, tax rate that we will apply to this in the medium term. Not, we're going to bring this in for two years and we'll just see what happens after that. We need a long-term plan. Just as we need a long-term plan for uh, the amount of houses that we need to build, we need a long-term plan for steadying the rental market. Yeah. Oh, do you get any sense from political circles that that's going to happen? Any of those proposals that Marion's putting out there might happen? Well, it's very difficult, isn't it? We're obviously going to get a big tick up in supply over the next, you know, four or five years, even with the, you know, uh, construction inflation. But the other side of the property market for everybody, especially buyers, consumers, renters, is prices. And there's no sense that even if we did get a big tick up in supply, that prices uh, of homes and rents are going to suddenly be affordable. And that's, there's a, I suppose, the depressing element uh, to the whole. Uh, that, that doesn't mean we should stop building because obviously things would be a lot worse if we weren't having this supply coming online. But um, yeah, no, it's it's just it's very difficult to just see um, where a solution, if I could even use that word, is going to come from. Um, the other thing I'd notice that you know there's such <laughs> an obsession around supply in this country. The industry um, is probably underestimating the impact of higher interest rates. Um, they seem to be causing uh, price reversals and downturns in, in a lot of other countries around us, countries with supply issues. So I, I just wonder if the industry is is not underestimating the impact of higher borrowing costs. They've risen so rapidly, so quickly. And if they were to stay elevated because you know core inflation stays elevated, uh, we could see some sort of price reversal in this country. The question is, is that meaningful for a prospective buyer? If prices drop five or ten percent, uh, you know they're still hugely um, the pr- average prices are, are still a massive multiple of average incomes here, and that's not going to change anytime soon. But if house prices drop ten percent, let's say uh, jobs are going to be lost across the economy, aren't they? So a lot of those prospective buyers might be out of work. Well, that's that's it. Yeah, that's that's another issue, a, different, a more difficult issue to pin down. But uh, typically, uh, high prices, prices go- don't drop in isolation; they drop for for a reason, right? Um, Marion, uh, is the industry underestimating the the, the higher borrowing costs uh, and the higher interest rates that have come into play over the past year? I think the industry are very cognizant of the higher uh, borrowing costs. You can see the impact that has on capital flows, and therefore it will have an impact actually on supply itself because we're not going to see as much. 
perhaps forward funding of development in the short to medium term until we see some certainty of where that interest rate cycle is going. I think what the industry are saying, rather than saying this isn't going to impact us, we're different everywhere else, is that we do have a uniquely critical position in terms of the housing market. So we we don't have a housing crisis because of COVID. We have a housing crisis because of everything that happened in the 10 years before COVID. So therefore, ours is much more deep-rooted. And it is difficult to see a position where prices would fall significantly in an environment where the stock is so low. But I mean, we've, you know, I think we need to stand back from this a little bit further and say, what is the right solution in the medium term? So just as Owen said there, you know, it's depressing to think that, you know, even with supply, will we improve affordability? I think if supply is addressed correctly, there is a strong possibility that the pace of price inflation will be such that it it will improve affordability if we see a strong growth in our economy and, and positive wage inflation. Um, unfortunately, in the short term, that's not likely to occur anytime soon. Now, what the government have done in terms of measures for first-time buyers, I think are actually to be um, given some consideration. We do have a help-to-buy scheme, which I think is due to um, end at the end of this year, although I think there's some rumours that it might go for a further year. And there is the first-home scheme. And collectively, they are both two very, very significant initiatives to help first-time buyers get on the property ladder. And, you know, like them or, or not, they could be an effective tool to improve affordability in the short term for first-time buyers. My biggest worry is that we're not thinking about other purchasing cohorts in this marketplace. So what about the quantity of people that are living in very large family homes that maybe are living there by themselves but cannot move out of that family home because there isn't an alternative and could we not look at at um, putting our focus on ensuring that supply that we deliver suits all parts of the market, not just first-time buyers? I do think that part of the reason we have a rental crisis and part of the reason why we have people living in accommodation that no longer suits their needs is that we have been for 30 years obsessed with first-time buyers rather than obsessed with ensuring that there's an adequate supply of all types of accommodation. Okay, Marion Finnegan and Umber Kennedy, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, Umber Kennedy and Cliff Taylor will join me to discuss the continuing rise in corporation tax receipts. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. On Tuesday, the government published the exchequer receipts for the first quarter of the year. They showed another bulge in corporation tax receipts, up €1.3 billion year-on-year in the period. Shortly, you'll hear from Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times, but I began by asking Omber Kennedy to go through the headline figures. Yeah, so uh, yesterday the... uh Department of Finance published its latest exchequer returns for the first quarter of 2023, and we had another surge in corporation tax receipts. They came in at 3.2 billion for the three-month period. That included 2.6 billion in March alone, and uh, the 3.2 billion for the first quarter was 70% up on the same period last year. Just to put that in context, last year we had a record. 22.6 billion for the year as a whole. So we're already ahead of those record stats. And most of the time, the corporation tax, as you know, comes in later in the year. 
Now we're getting uh, big figures in the early part of the year. Now, we know one big corporate in Ireland, Apple, does tend to hand over a tax in the early part of the year. So that may be the reason for this. We don't know. Um, obviously, this is all kept very hush-hush and quiet. So it's just an incredible uh, situation to have these record levels of corporation tax pushing on again. It's it's a question of when when does the windfall word become obsolete? Just to put it in context, you know, over 50% of this tax windfall from corporation tax is coming from like a 10 companies. And corporation tax now accounts for one in every eight euro of tax collected uh, as a whole. So um, extraordinary uh, figures again from the corporation tax front. And this coming in spite of the fact that we're, there's a very noticeable slowdown in tech and, and that was noticeable last year as well when the tech layoffs um, started to bite, including in Ireland. Like thousands of jobs have been lost in Ireland over the past uh, six months in the tech sector. So just explain to us how the receipts are going up by so much in spite of the fact that the tech sector seems to be you know, in a downturn. Yeah, uh, we're sort of looking out for that kind of flat spot somewhere along the line and we never seem to get one in terms of corporation tax. And obviously the profits um, that are being paid tax on probably predate the softening and the tech crunch and that's probably the explanation. So we might see a slowdown in corporation tax in 2024. Um, It doesn't look like we'll see it at all this year. Um, The Department of Finance officials were talking about their projection for the year, which is 22.7 billion, which is just 100 million up on last year. They said that that would almost certainly now be exceeded this year. Um, So, yeah, it's interesting. We have been thinking about that, um, you know, tech crunch and the slowdown tech and when will it appear uh, in our tax receipts. Uh, Good bodies, uh, stockbrokers made a warning about it recently. But at the moment, it just doesn't seem to be appearing at all. And every time we have warnings about corporation tax, they seem to go higher again. I mean, this has been going on for four or five years. And even the rainy day fund now, which uh, contains six billion of excess corporation tax receipts, seems too small, too inadequate, too ad hoc to manage these uh, excess receipts. So what the department and what the minister is going to announce in the next few weeks is the uh, establishment of a sovereign wealth fund Mm. and that's going to be actively managed and that's going to basically house these receipts which are going to at the rate we're going could build up quite quickly into a sizable fund and with the kind of costs to the public first coming down the lines from the uh, you know age-related costs that green transition this could be you know a key a key variable in the state's management of its public finances. Cliff, we had a sovereign wealth fund before, didn't we? We had the National Pension Reserve Fund, which was raided by the government, set up by Charlie McCreevy back in the day and raided by the government then when the uh, financial crash happened because we had to bail out our banks. Um, so this sounds like a, a mark too. What do, you think they're, what do you think they're planning and do you think they'll put a structure around it that will prevent future government's politicians from being able to get their grubby hands on Yeah, yeah, that's certainly a point, Kieran. that the Fiscal Advisory Council, which has been banging the drum on this long-term fund, has been making that uh, we need to have some kind of structure that, that means it can't be raided. It remains to be seen. Uh, what what Minister McGrath puts in place and uh, you would think as well while the Department of Finance on one side is keen to put money away and keen to uh, stop today's politicians pushing up spending even faster they'll also want to leave a bit of leeway there in case trouble hits so it'll be interesting to see what rules are put in place and exactly how it is structured but you're right the Pension Reserve Fund was there was raided to uh, to help 
bail out the banks uh, and balance the exchequer numbers back in the day and uh, after 2008 when huge pressure came on the exchequer. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how this one is structured. Um, Owen called it a, a rainy day fund. I know the government don't like that yeah. term. They're, they were calling it the National Reserve Fund. And the suggestion seemed to me in the early days of it at least that this was money that was being held in reserve just in case sure. we had a rainy day event, in case there was a recession, in case there was a big downturn in corporation tax receipts or whatever. The government would have some excess yeah. money to intervene and prop up the economy uh, in the interim. Yeah, it's interesting actually. The rainy day phrase itself became a bit uh, politically uh, controversial because the the opposition uh, statements were always, well, look, the rainy day is here. You should be spending the money already. So they insisted on calling it the National Reserve Fund to, to kind of avoid that. So we're not quite sure how, clear how this is going to be structured, but we might be looking at a couple of different funds so that you will have the reserve fund. It's there as a kind of a short-term backstop in case... For example, the bottom falls out of corporation tax in 2024 or 2025 in an unexpected way, or there's some other bump in the economy. And also a longer term fund uh, to help pay for the big things we know are coming down the tracks. Pensions is the one, uh, state pensions is the one that's been underlined by the Fiscal Advisory Council. There's the bills from climate change, there's the bills from investment in housing, I suppose. Looking back at economic history here, a big problem has been the kind of boom to bust cycle we've gone through. So typically, spending has been increased and particularly investment spending in good times. And then when trouble hits, investment spending falls off the edge of a cliff uh, because it's the easiest thing to cut. Because if you're a politician and you're faced with a choice between cutting welfare payments and current spending or cutting investment spending, investment is always going to be the easier one. So the strategy I suspect here is to try and provide a buffer that in case the exchequer finances do get tight, that the kind of vital investments that we need in housing and climate, et cetera, et cetera, that there's cash there to fund those over the long term, if you like. Now, this is our money, of course, uh, and yep. there are some citizens uh, who might argue that uh, they'd like to have it back, thank you very much, as opposed to putting it into a, a rainy fund or call it what you want fund, um, and that they could do it back in terms of tax cuts because they're struggling to make ends meet. Yeah, it's an interesting argument and... Uh, It'll be interesting to see the run-up to the budget this year to see what kind of debate comes on and to see if Fine Gael, for example, who have been, I suppose, the main beaters of the drum on the on the tax cut agenda, uh, you know, start coming forward with the idea that there should be more tax cuts in the budget because in the short term, there is money there to do that. Uh, the problem, I suppose, is that in the long term, all, all the experts are saying that, you know, the tax taxes may actually have to go up to pay for all the additional spending Um that, that that we need to do over the next few years, both in the in the kind of medium term and uh, and the long term. I mean, it's interesting. There isn't really a, I suppose, a political party arguing that case strongly in Ireland at the moment. Uh, Fine Gael kind of put up the tax cut argument, but at the same time, they're making plans to uh, increase uh, to increase spending very significantly over the next few years, uh, which is going to mean higher taxes rather than lower taxes. Uh, but nobody has really taken that political ground. The PDs haven't really been replaced. The PD, Charlie McCreevy axis, that led to uh, taxes being cut so heavily uh, in the run-up to the financial crash. Nobody's really taken on that that agenda and run with it. Uh, it seems kind of Sinn Féin-style social spending policies are, are now in vogue and, and that's where the political debate is centred. Mm. Uh, Owen, at the press briefing yesterday, did the officials give any sense of their view on whether the tech crunch will begin to bite on corporation tax revenues either this year or next year? Um, 
they, they're very vague on uh, just what's driving the the bulge in corporation tax revenue. Uh, every time we get a, a quarterly um, increase, uh, we get this uh, phrase that's uh, saying it's just down to timing issues. Uh, we kind of you know smile at that; they smile back. It's it seems it, all all you get from department officials is that there's a lot of moving parts to corporation tax. There's um, so it's very difficult to pin down. All I can say is they were pretty confident that the total for this year would exceed last year's record total. So it didn't seem that they were overly worried or pressurized by the possibility that tech companies' profitability would come down and we would have a hit out of the good body uh, warning a few weeks ago. Another thing I just say on a white thing, one of the reasons to set up this fund and to park a lot of this money to one side and... Uh, um, a warning you're going to hear a lot about over the next six to eight months is overheating. If you had all this money swash, swashing back into the economy, the, the capacity constraints are, are still there, and that's that's a difficulty, uh, you know, and it's a very difficult sell, obviously, to tell people that we can't spend this money because we just don't have the capacity or will overheat the economy. But that's something that the RSI is beginning to warn about again. And remember, the last time we were worried about that was 2019, just before COVID, and obviously that warning went away. But it, it's going to come back. So um, I think it'll be interesting just to see if they look at the kind of Norwegian model which um, is very strict uh, around taking the money from, you know, these kind of super normal revenues or profits from their oil and gas industry, putting it to one side. It, it's very strictly governed uh, politically to stop, I suppose, governments using it to cover day-to-day spending, which is kind of the point of it. They've um, actually invested hugely in renewables. I mean, we, we know about their fossil fuel yeah, revenues, but yeah. they ag- actually have spent an awful lot of money on uh, renewables and they're getting a lot of their energy yeah, now from yeah. that source. So the, the officials kind of hinted that two big things happened last year. Um, one is that the government's decision on the pension age uh, not to raise it basically meant that there's going to be even more pensions pressure on the public purse down the line. And then the second thing is that the tax receipts themselves just got bigger. So uh, it seems that the thinking is we need to, uh, you know, have a more strategic approach just yeah. to what we do with these receipts. Uh, Cliff, we put a lot of this down to tech, but actually pharma's booming as well, isn't it? And that's that's right, yeah. uh, driving a lot of this uh, revenue increase. Yeah, it is. I mean, first of all, on the tech, I think uh, some of the tax experts are saying that the first sign of, you know, whether there's trouble or, or, or not, uh, might come in June when the first payments that relate to this year's profits or this year's expected profits will be made. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. Uh, but you're right, um, the pharma sector is uh, at least as important in terms of these soaring revenues as tech. It doesn't tend to get as much coverage. It doesn't tend to be as sexy in terms of of what it does. Uh, but there's been massive investment in these companies in Ireland over the last uh, five or six years. Uh, like the tech companies, they've moved a lot of intellectual property to Ireland uh, and there's no doubt that they are still continuing to do very well and are, are big players in the in this surge as well. Yeah. Um, Cliff, you've been writing this week about the government's plans to introduce this 15% rate of corporation tax, which is part of the OECD's uh, wider global plan to try and harmonise uh, corporation taxes for large companies. Now, I suppose we all presume that at the beginning of this, that the 12.5% headline rate would simply move to uh, 15% and apply to those with turnover above €750 million. Euro. But in fact, that's not going to happen. We're going to keep the headline 12.5% rate and we're going to introduce, it seems, a, a top-up tax. Tell us uh, the thinking behind that. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess we went through three iterations on this. First of all, we thought there'd be one new corporation tax rate of 15%, as you say. Then we thought there might be two rates, 12 and a half and 15. Mm. Uh, and now it looks like uh, there would just be one headline rate, as they call it, 12 and a half percent. So everyone will, will pay at that rate. And then under a separate process, if you like, the bigger companies will pay a top-up tax to bring their effective rate up to 15%. And it seems like the argument behind this is it was just it's just more, more straightforward to do that. So rather than having to tear up the whole uh, book of corporation tax rules, that book kind of more or less remains in place. And the big companies have to go through an additional process to pay this top-up tax, which brings their effective rate to 15%. Now, the outcome apparently is slightly different from introducing a you know, a straightforward second rate, if you like, but very similar. And it seems that the government feels it's more workable, that a lot of other countries are going to go this way, that it'll help to protect uh, tax revenue in this country. So it seems on the face of it that it's a smart thing to do. And it's what a lot of other European countries may do as well. And particularly because our, our current rate is, is under the 15% rate, it makes sense to do it this way. Obviously, if your rate was higher, then, then it's a different argument. It could be a bit messier. Are we absolutely sure that these big companies, particularly the the multinationals, are going to end up paying an effective tax rate of 15%? I can see a scenario where a few years down the road, somebody releases a report which shows that these companies are actually paying a lower effective tax yeah. rate and we'll get a whole load of baloney about why that is. And no, they really are paying 15%, but then they had the credits and they had this, that and the other that they could offset it against. It has been set up fairly tightly. I guess, in fairness, and the fact that most countries are cooperating in it, you know, does make it more difficult for, for the big multinationals to shift money around the world, if you like, and, and avoid the 15% rate. Now, there are carve-outs and allowances uh, and special allowances for things like research and development, which will continue to apply. So you're right, we're going to have to wait and see in three or four years' time just what the difference is between what companies are paying now and what they pay in future. And, and will the effective rate be fully... 15% well, it'll probably it'll probably depend on 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 what you take as as a profit figure and is that before allowances or after allowances because there's a whole different process needed to come up with the profit that's going to be subject to this tax as compared to the profit that's subject to the existing tax that appears in companies annual accounts but yes I I, I think it is a process that will ensure companies first of all it makes it much more difficult to uh, engage in the most aggressive forms of tax planning uh, and secondly, it makes it more difficult to move money around the world in, in, the, in the way that they have at the moment. But a lot of allowances are still going to apply. For example, the tax allowances uh, which companies get when they move intellectual property to Ireland, they're, they're still going to apply. Um, so there, is there still going to be controversy? Yes. Are companies going to be paying more than they are now? Yes, they are as well. I think the other complication is that the US hasn't been clear about the way it's going to apply this tax Um it's got into all kinds of trouble in Congress. It doesn't look like Biden can get his plans through. Um, so, so the US has gone some of the way to introducing some of the some of the rules under the OECD process, but but not all of them. And I think there's a bit of clarity needed for the big American companies and how it's going to operate vi Europe vis-a-vis -vis the US. We haven't seen that yet, so could be scope for a bit more trouble there. I think. Owen, whatever way this tax is applied, if you just look at it on a simple mathematics basis. It would seem that our corporation tax is going to go up. We we were told that uh, a couple of billion was vulnerable to this OECD process. Maybe that'll turn out to be true. I don't know. But if we go from effectively a 12.5% rate to a 15% rate and these companies remain as profitable as they are now, then we're going to get more yet more money from them, aren't we? Yeah, that seems a kind of logical conclusion. They, 
they they talked yesterday just about the two elements of the of the um, BEPS project. One being the the minimum rate of fifteen percent, which uh, Cliff has just talked about. Didn't seem too uh, you know worried about the implications of that for Ireland. They said where we might fall down is the reallocation of taxing rights, which is you know going to be in favour of bigger countries, and we will lose out in that process. And that's still being worked on, still being fine tuned. Uh, the original estimate was that we might lose, as you said, two billion from this process. Um, they kind of admitted that that figure is kind of obsolete now, and there's too many moving parts now to to really go back to that figure. But losing two billion in the context of you know making a billion in March alone, according to the latest figures, you know, six billion it, in March alone. Yeah, so it's it's um, you know the, the the loss to us just doesn't seem to be impacting in any major way, and the windfall just seems to be getting bigger and bigger. Cliff, where is that second stage at in terms of the reallocation of profits? Still a negotiation, Kieran, uh, and you know remains to be seen whether they can bottom it out and get a global deal on it. The target is to have something in place by the summer in terms of a framework of how countries might operate it. So that's the first hurdle to be got gotten over, and the second hurdle to be gotten over is is uh, is the US uh, and a feeling in the by the Republicans in Congress that this is yet more tax on American companies. It'll hit competitiveness. It's not fair to uh, to U.S. companies. So there is, uh, I, I think, some uncertainty about how that process is going to go forward. And as that's the bit that's going to cost Ireland money, you could see in the short term that we're going to gain, the bit that's going to gain us money, the 15% rate is going to go ahead, but the bit that might cost us might not. Unlikely to last, I'd say there's a, strong move in Europe to uh, implement a digital sales tax, which is what Owen was talking about, this reallocation of taxing rights. If the OECD process falls, um, that would cost Ireland in the same, you know, in a similar in a similar way. Countries could go ahead on a unilateral basis. There could be tensions between Europe and the US on this over the coming years. So a lot of uncertainty, I think, still about that phase of the process in the next few months will be important to see whether they can at least get some kind of agreed framework to implement it. The UK went ahead with that digital sales tax, and I think yeah. it did well. Uh, it generated more than they expected in year one, but yeah. um, I saw a report in the Financial Times today where officials are saying that um, they expect the revenues to actually drop. They don't expect it to be as uh, fruitful going forward. Okay, yeah, I'm not sure why that why that would be. Um, certainly, there's a strong move in uh, Italy and in France to go ahead with similar taxes, um, they kind of put it on the back burner because of the uh, EU agreement, uh, which kind of said, look, we'll, we'll, we'll look at this again later in the year. We'll see where the OECD is on it. Uh, but I think even politically, it's going to be difficult for big countries like France not to, not to go ahead in some form on this. Uh, and if you read the directive um, that the EU put forward in terms of impl- implementing the 15%, it is mentioned a few times. Uh, that the ministers want to report back from the commission and from negotiators later this year on how this is progressing. And they don't say what will happen, but the implicit point is that this hasn't been forgotten and that, you know, something is going to happen here. Yeah, I think the reason behind it is um, that the tech companies are actually going to circumvent this um, tax on them okay. um, as you know as, as they want to do. Um, well, I suppose that the difficulty there for the, for the UK is if other countries aren't operating it, it's probably difficult for one country to do it on their own. Mm. What you need is for 
all of Europe to do it. So, and then it's then it's hard for the companies to avoid. One thing I'd say, just you know, we're trying to, always trying to pick up on on what's happening to corporation tax here. So I'm looking at the uh, global trends, and actually the global trends, whether it's COVID, whether it's increased corporate profitability, always seem to benefit us, and it's going up and up. And I, I think some of the officials were were saying yesterday the problem might be down the line for us is that one of these big companies, their capital allowances will run out and they leave, and that's probably where a bang, a mini bang will go off at the heart of our public finances rather than one of these global trends going against us because, you know, the OECD project did seem to be against us. It's probably going to benefit us ultimately by giving more certainty to these companies and it doesn't seem like it's it's triggering a major upset in where these companies are located. So I think the, the big thing is just really uh, we can't see it because it's going to be a decision in one of these companies that's going to go against us rather than a global trend that's going against us. Yeah, and of course, it's only the 15% rate is only a minimum. I mean, the Brits, uh, for example, are putting up the corporation tax rate, aren't they? So uh, large countries, and particularly because of the recent recession, um, are, are actually charging more than uh, uh, the 15% rate, so we're still going to be in a pretty good spot. Uh, Cliff, with a fair wind at our back, when is this 15% rate going to come into force? Uh, next year, it has to be legislated for this year, and the minister said it'll be implemented next year. And there are little kind of nukes. At the beginning of next year? Yeah, or middle yeah for, for next year, if you like, for next year's profits. There are kind of little nooks and crannies of the OECD agreement, which which um, it looks like are going to take a bit longer. But the, this top-up tax should be in place next year. Uh, that's, what, that's what the minister has said. And do we wait for everybody to implement the 15% rate in whatever way they're doing it um, or do we simply press on even if some countries have yet to do it? I, I think I think it looks like we'll press on. Uh, this is part of the EU agreement which was reached a few months ago. You might remember there was there was a bit of a schmazzle with Poland and Hungary and then Poland again who were, who were holding out against it for reasons that weren't entirely clear. But it's, it's, it's done now. So unless there is some um, last minute problem in the EU that the directive isn't finalised, um, that some countries want to reopen the book again. I think it's you know it'll be legislated for this year and uh, and implemented next year. And own final word to you, and just uh, briefly, if you don't mind, uh, the exchequer figures yesterday very strong corporation tax, but also good numbers on income tax and good numbers on VAT. In spite of all the job losses we hear about in the tech sector, in spite of all of this uh, talk about recession, in spite of soaring inflation and people supposedly hunkering down a bit. The economy still continues to boom. That seems to be the case. Yeah, the income tax reflects the fact. I mean, it's not massively up, but it's certainly not going down. And we're all we're at near full employment, so that kind of explains the income tax. Uh, some of the VAT is obviously, you know, higher prices is is filtering back into the government's coffers via, uh, you know, VAT. So yeah, no, it's 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 pretty strong. Uh, the good figures in income and VAT though are dwarfed by the corporation tax receipts, which are just huge. All right, Umber Kennedy and Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Umber Kennedy, Marine Finnegan and Cliff Taylor for joining me on the show. Suzanne Brennan produced the episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time. Take care.